Welcome to a special edition of the LB Podcast for Wednesday, September 23rd, 2020. I'm your host, Chris Markovich. On this week's special episode, we talk about the BC snap election called for October the 24th. Is it smart politicking or is it a cynical ploy for power? I speak with political commentator and author David Moskrop about the BC NDP's snap election call and their chances at forming a majority government. Plus, I speak with Derek O'Keefe, one of the co-founders of Ricochet Media, about the potential risks of calling an election in the middle of a pandemic. And later in the show, part three of our series on the Green Party of Canada leadership race. I speak with Miriam Haddad about her candidacy, her position as an eco-socialist, and the chances of moving the Green Party of Canada further to the left. A few hours ago, I met with the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia, Janet Austin, and she has granted my request to dissolve the Legislative Assembly, and the general election will be held in British Columbia on Saturday, October 24th. Now, none of us thought this would be how we would spend 2020 when it started nine months ago, but the COVID-19 pandemic has changed everything. We are in unprecedented times, with challenges we could have never imagined. I want everyone to know that I've struggled mightily with this decision and it did not come easy to me. I understand that families are concerned about their loved ones and their livelihood. I know people are uncertain and worried about the future. I understand that full well. Joining me now on the show is a political commentator, author and podcaster, David Moskrop. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Oh, always my pleasure. So we got a lot of things to talk about, but uh, the first and foremost thing on many people's minds in British Columbia is we have a snap election called by the Premier John Horgan yesterday. Uh, What do you make of their chances at forming a majority? And do you think that this gambit will pay off? Well, I think it'll pay off. I think their chances of forming a majority are quite good. Unless for some reason the, the election gets bogged down in in the call itself i mean if the election question becomes should we have called the election then the ndp's in big trouble but i don't think it will i think it will be how do we manage covid and how do we recover afterwards which is what it should be and the the bc liberals are in a fairly weak position the ndp is wildly popular Uh, So I suspect they would do it, and I suspect they're more or less ready for it because, as I've been saying, imagine the counterfactual. Ask yourself, would they have called the election if they were wildly unpopular? The answer is no. So presumably they think they can make this popularity work for them, and I think they're, they're probably right. Yeah, and from what I'm hearing from folks close to the party as well as others that have experience in British Columbia politics more in general, They seem to think that if they wait to call the election for the fixed election date, not only is it going to be a tougher election for them to fight based on their record economically, but the COVID-19 pandemic reality that we're all in is going to be even more magnified over the winter and spring months. And that will further hurt their chances of A, getting a majority and B, maintaining their hold on the minority situation they have right now. 
Yeah, and, and you know, it's funny, is, is break that down, and, and I think you see the, the tensions in the, the sort of competing narratives as to whether or not this was a risky and cynical power grab, which to some extent it was, because again, imagine if they had been unpopular, I don't think they would have done it. Um, or is it a necessary reset that gives them the, the control of the legislature that they need to, to pass ambitious policy without too much trouble? Now, I, now, my pushback is I think they could have passed legislation just fine, and in fact, maybe even better legislation by maintaining the minority parliament and working with, with the opposition parties. So first of all, and the Greens were very clear that they would continue to support the government, but it was a, a thin margin, and there were a couple of by-elections that were required in the future. So I, I've been critical of the election. I think it's a power grab just to a large extent, but I do see to some point, to some extent, why they would want to do it. Uh, but again, I mean, one of the other pushbacks is if you really think that it's going to be harder to fight the election a year from now, what does that say about your plans to manage the pandemic? I mean, if you're assuming things are going to be worse a year from now, it seems to me a defeatist posture that doesn't say a lot about your capacity to manage the pandemic in the next year. So uh, I think there's a lot of tensions there that need to be worked out. Now, in terms of those tensions, as you mentioned, uh, the BC Green leader, Sonia Furstenau, has been very vocal in her support of the CASA that was originally signed by Andrew Weaver, the former BC Greens leader who left. Um, But he has been vocally supportive of Premier John Horgan in his bid for this uh, re-election campaign and has even gone on to say that calling this election wouldn't in uh, any way, shape, or form in the spirit of the CASA or the, um, what is it called? The, uh, I can't remember the name for it. Can you remember? <laughs> the uh, Confidence and Supply Agreement. That's it. Yeah. So yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in terms of the Confidence and Supply Agreement, he argues that it would actually still hold true and stand as it is even with an election. So there is also the argument to be made with Andrew Weaver's departure and his controversial stance within the party, as well as him calling out his own colleagues uh, on their votes. Mm -hmm. Um, It appears as though some of the noise that they're making might be for their own political survival as well. And let's not forget also that the BC liberals have had a lot of their own baggage over the years, not just in government uh, in the last parliament, but also in opposition as well with a lot of their MLAs having controversial views on social issues and their current leader, Andrew Wilkinson being accused of being an elitist or part of the 1% that, only cares about business interests. So there's a lot at stake for all three major parties in this election. So a lot of the backlash that the governing party has received over the election call can somewhat be attributed to some of those weaknesses or perceived weaknesses in the opposition party's positions as well. Oh, yeah. And I think, look, everybody's going to play politics to some extent. I mean, it's a partisan political system and that that's just going to happen. Now, I come from, normatively, I come from a position in which I, I like minority governments, I like minority parliaments, uh, you know, whether it's a coalition government or whether it's what the British Columbia has and what the, exists federally, although without a 
a formal agreement, uh, a sort of ad hoc or specific uh, issue-based support system of, of minority party support. I like that because I think it forces governments to work with opposition parties in ways that can be constructive in a ways which I would argue, and this is part of the reason I support proportional representation, uh, includes the voice of more British Columbians or more Canadians in the sort of day-to-day governance of the country. Because if you're one party, I'm thinking federally here, and you're elected with you know, 33% of a 65% turnout, then the number of Canadians who, who of, of potential uh, voters who cast the ballot for you is narrow. And don't pretend, let's not pretend for a second that governments truly govern for everybody. Uh, they govern within a fairly, fairly narrow bandwidth, even though sometimes they can be ecumenical. So uh, I, I like the idea of minority parliaments. You know, one of the, the, the fallacies that keeps getting repeated by John Horgan and others is that they, the, the government needs a new mandate. And what the, the government of British Columbia needs and what John Horgan wants is a stable, uh, decisive mandate from the people of British Columbia. And, and that's why we need an election. It makes no sense because this isn't a, an American system. It's not a presidential system. It's not a congressional system. We have a parliamentary system. You don't have mandates in this system you have the confidence of the legislature as the government, or you don't have the confidence of the legislature. And if you have the confidence of the legislature, you get to govern. You get to do whatever you want within the boundaries of the Constitution, sometimes slightly outside of them. Uh, if you don't have confidence, then you fall and there's a new government, either appointed by the, 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 governor, the lieutenant governor, governor general, or through an election. So the, the mandate talk is nonsense. My pushback against John Horgan is they didn't even try to govern, <laughs> right, uh, past this. They just said, oh, there were a couple of bills where we got uh, held up. We got surprised on an amendment. We can't make this work. And my pushback is you didn't really even try. And so I think to, to have really have sold the, the argument that it wasn't going to work, they needed to have actually been defeated on something critical. But, you know, here we are now. I think the next thing is this. The punishment for the calling election is going to be baked in real soon. Now we need to get on to talk about recovery and policy. And so in that vein, let's actually start talking about a little bit of that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the elections BC, um, elections BC as well as Dr. Bonnie Henry have, you know, spoken about the, the need for safety protocols to be put in place for people to mark their ballots. And to some extent that work has already been done. Dr. Bonnie Henry was on previous occasions speaking about some of the work that had been done with elections BC in months previous, leading up to a couple of by-elections that were to be called and had confidence back then that votes could be cast safely. Now, when it comes to some of the issues that have been affecting folks during this pandemic, two of the issues that are front and center right now are the, um, the end of CERB and the transition to the new form of EI, as well as the lift on the ban of, on evictions. And those are still in place. In fact, the CERB payments are due to end at the end of next week. And evictions are you know, uh, set to take place effectively now. And we're also looking at a rent increase um, for renters at the end of um, November, early December. In fact, 
I, being a renter, just got my notice a couple of weeks ago in the mail that my rent is going up December 1st. So why do you think that even though we can see why the governing party wants to quote unquote get a new mandate, which obviously doesn't really mean much in a parliamentary system, but why why were those issues not addressed in any meaningful way regardless of the federal involvement or not, why were those issues not addressed before the election call? Do you think that the BC uh, NDP just thought there wasn't time to do so or that there was something else going on where they felt it wasn't important enough as, an, as a ballot box question? Well, good, good question. I mean, really quickly on the election safety thing and then into the substance, I mean, well, this is also substantive, but, uh, you know, I, I was saying this sir earlier today and I've been saying it a lot as much as I think the election is risky Canada has among the world's best electoral agencies including at the subnational level including elections BC if anyone can do it it's these folks and they've been been preparing and the initial announcements about safety measures were extraordinarily encouraging have the election on a Saturday have plenty of advanced polling days so that you spread out the number of people who are voting on any given day and therefore lining up or in the, in the room where they're voting and have lots of mail-in ballots. And, and from what I, I sadly don't get to vote in the BC election. Uh, I wish I did, but I don't. But from what I've heard from people who are using the service of, of ordering a postal ballot, it's extraordinarily easy. You go, you pop online, it takes you a couple of seconds, you know, a minute or two, and then you've got the thing in the mail and you send it back and you're done. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's probably far more convenient to do it this way than it is to go to the polling station and, and to vote in person. So I, I do think that the protocols are encouraging. And if, if everyone's vigilant and if the parties campaign in a responsible way, you can do it fairly safely. And so that's encouraging. So good. Bracket that. Uh, now, now, in terms of, of the substance of what you're talking about on, on policy agenda, you know, one of the things that's been frustrating me is that for the first couple of months of the pandemic, sort of March, April, May, June, even July, we were talking about how how speed trumped perfection, that the, the emergency rollouts of, of everything from sort of, you know, provincial federal cooperation on rents, commercial and, and individual, to the extent that individual uh, measures existed, on CERB, on the, the, the wage subsidy, on the emergency bank account, the, the SIBA, uh, all of this stuff. Um, had to happen quickly. And you notice that the policies were sort of changing on the fly because governments were trying to figure it out and cooperate, which is fine. Seven, eight months in, that that changes, right? At some point, you got to say, you guys got to figure this out because it's been seven months. This isn't going anywhere. It hasn't been going anywhere for a while. We knew that it might get worse. There's, you know, there's reason to believe that it's not only going to be persistent, but that it's going to ebb and flow. So what, what the hell are you doing? And And I think you know, to some extent, governments just got overwhelmed and, and just couldn't figure out what to do. Uh, the, the liberal transition federally to the EI program looks like one of those measures to say, okay, we're going to take CERB and try to work it into something more stable and permanent, but we'll see how that goes. But I think part of the problem is you've got 13 jurisdictions, federal, uh, 14 jurisdictions, federal and provincial, trying to work together to figure out different measures. And they're, you know, you're waiting in some cases. So I think in some sense, the government of British Columbia was probably held up by the throne speech federally. 
um, and, and negotiations federally. Uh, and, and we'll wait to see in the next couple of days what comes from the throne speech and then eventually from the budget. And then, of course, at the, at the subnational level in British Columbia, uh, you know, you're, you're constrained to some extent. Uh, and, and so I think they were playing a bit of a game of, of waiting to see what worked, how it worked and what they could get away with next. And here we are. So I, I suppose if you imagine this thing in, in phases, the first phase, I don't want to say wave, but imagine it as a sort of like a policy implementation and design and imp- design and implementation phase that's sort of ended. We're into the second now. And what are you going to do now? And I think that's where we, we've, run up against the fact that this is a tricky time to have an election because this is when you want policy to be designed and implemented. And I think the disruption of going whatever it is, six weeks without being able to implement new policies is going to be extraordinarily tricky. The government has left behind Carol James to sort of run everything. Right. Yeah. Now look, if I could pick one person to run everything, at any time, it would be Carol James, who's, who's wildly competent and, and uh, you know, someone I think British Columbians can look to as uh, trust and, and, and imagine that she's going to do an extraordinarily good job, but she's not going to be able to design new policy, right? So, I no. mean, yeah. so that is a concern, is, is that we need to be, you know, putting this stuff together now, but you won't be in British Columbia. It's not going to start happening until November, probably. Now, let's talk about the federal question. Um, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is going to unveil the throne speech in the next day or two. And then there's going to be ostensibly a vote on the throne speech when the um, policies are introduced in Parliament. And... We've seen, you know, missives from the other opposition parties, including uh, the conservatives saying that they're you know, likely going to uh, vote against it or have hinted at that. Um, the bloc has indicated at some point or another that um, that they're uh, that they might oppose the throne speech or would um, be very, very critical of of the policies introduced by the prime minister. And today we actually saw Jagmeet Singh on Twitter say that. Um, they are going to look very closely at the policies and they have like a a laundry list of demands. So what do you think the chances are of the opposition parties actually teaming up to bring the government down? And what, if any, things are you looking for for the Trudeau government at this point to survive a confidence vote? Well, it looks an awful lot like everyone's there are sort of like three simultaneous games of chicken going on because I don't actually think, I mean, I could be wrong. There's a precedent for it, but I actually don't think anybody wants an election. I mean, maybe the liberals, but I don't even think they do. I think nobody wants an election, but everyone wants to be seen as being tough, getting what they want, serving their, their constituents, serving their, their ideological constituents. So they're going to be pushing but in a lot of cases, they better be careful they don't get what they wish for. Because in, in terms of, of defeating the government, I mean, I think the Canadian electorate would be hostile to an election in a way that the, the BC electorate would make the BC electorate look positively warm towards it. And so, you know, I, I think there'll be a lot of posturing, uh, but ultimately, it'll pass. The reply to the throne speech will be fine. 
I certainly hope so because I just don't think we need a federal election right now if, if they can make it work. But I also think that a lot of it, it, it will be on the liberals. You know, I, don't, I don't think Justin Trudeau is equipped as a leader to be a particularly good cooperator and compromiser. I don't think he's particularly well equipped to lead a, a minority parliament as, as fine as some of this current parliament has been in an extraordinary circumstance. So, uh, you know, I, I think when push comes to shove, it, it might get close, but it is incumbent on the liberals to compromise, especially now. Uh, in terms of what we're looking for, I mean, it depends on which parties the, the prime minister decides he wants to court. I don't think he's going to get everybody. I, I think the liberals have got to make a decision. Do you want to do you want the NDP in the block? Do you want the conservatives? You know, who do you want supporting you? You can try for everyone, but I think in this circumstance, that's a, that's a good way to accidentally end up with either extraordinarily close vote or a lost vote. So I think you want to sort of, you know, go left. And, and I would imagine that they'll find a way to cooperate with the NDP. I mean, who knows? I mean, you know, political, the graveyards are full of pro- political predictions. But I, I would suspect that they can find a way to work with the NDP and work with the bloc, because I also think there's a lot of overlap between what the NDP is going to want and what the bloc's going to want. But the bloc is fascinating to me because, you know, Blanchette has suggested that they're ready to defeat the government and so on, well, with, with, with some help. I don't think the bloc is going to improve their lot. I don't see them growing a ton in Quebec, and I don't see them having more influence than they do now. So I don't really know what that end game is. I mean, they're, they're an influential part of a, of a minority parliament. And they grew, Blanchet grew the caucus considerably in 2019. So I don't really know what they're playing at. Uh, what, what I hope is, you know, the liberals, I suspect, are going to have a sort of semi-milquetoast, mostly centrist, unfortunately restrained speech. I'm a ho- I hope I'm wrong. We'll, we'll see very soon. And that the NDP will try to pull them left. And, I, and if, I'm not a political strategist. God help us all. But um, I would imagine maybe the liberals have sort of baked in the expectation that they're going to be pulled left a little bit on some of this stuff. And I hope that they are. But, I mean, again, it, it remains to be seen. And, and we keep hearing about there'll be three pillars. And... <laughs> I guess the best way to summarize it is I'm not holding out for the big transformative change that I think we need, but I think there's going to be a ton of room of improvement and you're going to see that forced by the NDP. That's, that's my, my gut sense. Now, last thing I want to ask you about before you go, um, there's this uh, new um, podcast collective and they call themselves the Harbinger Media Network. Uh, what do you <laughs> think about them? Well, I, I, uh, you had me in Harbinger, <laughs> I, right? Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I the the podcast space is uh, uh, wildly. I mean, as as we both know, is wildly competitive. Um, but any time that you can introduce new voices, dissenting voices that are, people are that are pushing back against uh the the mainstream then then all the better what what's what are you thinking what what's your takeaway so for me personally as someone who likes to listen to political podcasts 
I think it's a nice change to have uh, a collective of like-minded voices that have the ability to put forth something that is very, very coordinated because we look at the potosphere, as you call it, or as one would call it, (laughs) and a lot of it is centrist at best and right-wing at worst, and they are very coordinated. Um, Whether they say so or not, their messages are often very similar. They have a lot of money behind them and they're very effective on social media. And I think to a certain extent, more broadly politically, uh, the left is very fractured. So having a media outlet like Harbinger, I think will really, really help to kind of counter a little bit of that. Um, and you know, let's be honest, most of the top podcasts in North America are very heavily sponsored by, you know, corporations. Um, so whether they are, you know, direct or indirect is beside the point. They have very, very big backers. Um, I mean, and if you look at the, the number one podcast, uh, in, in North America right now, Joe Rogan, he signed a $40 million deal with Spotify. That's huge. Yeah. And you know, there's just no competition for money like that. Uh, the CEO of Spotify is worth tens of billions of dollars. So if you can get a lucrative deal like that, more power to you. But most leftists and most podcasters just don't have access to that. So I think having a network like Harbinger that, you know, has the support of Passage and folks that are in, you know, left-wing circles that can coordinate these voices together is only going to be a good thing for podcasts and for left-wing media in general. Yeah. uh, I mean, I, I agree. And uh, you know, one of the things that I've, that I've noticed, I think it was Luke Savage of Jacobin who who was talking about this recently is that if you had, you know, asked a few years, if you looked at the, the landscape a few years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, could you have imagined the sort of presence of, of new, especially independent leftist media that we see today? I don't think so. I mean, you're, you're right that the stuff out there is overwhelmingly corporate centrist and, and, you know, small L liberal, right? I mean, I don't even think we need to do left, right. I think it's enough to say that it's all liberal, small L that in, in, in most ways, if you were to take say the federal parties, the liberal party and the conservative party, and even in many cases, the new Democrats, they are uh, largely small L liberal. Certainly the conservatives and the liberals more so, but even many of the new Democrats. I mean, of course, the, the, the NDP have run away from the word socialist. They took it out of their constitution. They've backed off of it. There's been a moving towards the center for that party for a long time as they chase what they see to be electoral viability. I think Singh has pulled them back from some, from some of that, but it's still there. And so uh, the, 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 the rise of truly leftist, largely in many cases socialist, and unapologetically so socialist stuff is encouraging and it's going to help, uh, I think, create the intellectual foundation and the organizational capacity that the left needs. And I think, you know, not to get all Gramscian here, although nothing wrong with being Gramscian. Uh, no, not at all. Need, nothing at all. I mean, uh, and you know, you, you've got to build that intellectual capacity. You've got to build that ideational capacity. You've got to build those networks and you've got to lay a foundation uh, 
both in terms of, of, of what's, you know, the ideas that are circulating in a space, but also the organizational capacity and networking to make those things a reality so that when there's an opportunity, you can capitalize. And I think that's been a long time coming, uh, but, but it's there. And there's something about the last couple of years that are profoundly different than the last few decades. The, the agenda is changing. Young people are angry. Young people are frustrated. Socialism isn't a dirty word. You know, there, there was E.J. Dion and, a, and someone else wrote about this recently for, I think it was Brookings, that the, the sort of conceptions of socialism in the United States and acceptance of it are changing. That it isn't the Cold War frame persists with older folks, but it's changing among younger folks. And, all, you know, you only have to look at AOC and Sanders and the squad in the U.S. to see that. And a lot of that, that dialogue and way of thinking and presence is permeating Canada as well. So I, I welcome uh, networks like this, collectives like this, uh, indie outlets like Reed Passage, like Ricochet, who are out there, Jacobin, Current Affairs, these organizations that are out there uh, supporting what's, what's bubbling in the population and, and pushing it forward. And uh, I hope that that will coalesce around a, a few big policy asks and support to get some big structural transformations in the next couple of years because our lives depend on it. But I think it's more likely that we're going to get them now than it has been at any point in the last, I don't know, 50 years, 60 years, 100 years. And, and that's, that's encouraging in its own way. It's a Christ-a-tunity. I like that word, Christ-a-tunity. <laughs> I think I stole it from The Simpsons. I think it was on The Simpsons way back in I think in the so day. too, yeah. David Mosscrop is the author of Too Dumb for Democracy and the host of the Open to Debate podcast. You can find him on Twitter at David underscore Mosscrop, and you can check out the new podcast collective known as Harbinger Media on their website, harbingermedianetwork.com, and they're also on Twitter at Harbinger Tweets. Thank you so much for joining me on the show, David, and all the best to you, and uh, stay safe, and uh, hopefully we'll see a new do uh, sometime soon. <laughs> it's my absolute pleasure, and uh, once we get a nice socialist program, I'll, I'll shave the beard. Coming up, I speak with Derek O'Keefe about the BC election call and the chances that John Horgan's NDP have to stay in government. Plus, I speak with Kiefer Furtak, of the Badrino Politics podcast about the BC election and why the BC NDP may be making a huge mistake. And later in the show, part three of our series on the Green Party leadership race, I speak with Miriam Haddad about her position as an eco-socialist and a prison abolitionist in the federal election campaign. Joining me now on the show is one of the co-founders of Ricochet Media, Derek O'Keefe. Welcome back to the show. Oh, it's great to be back, Chris. Thank you for having me again. And um, we have a lot to talk about, but uh, not a lot of time. So let's get right to it. Um, we're staring at uh, the possibility of an election in British Columbia after we saw the announcement come yesterday from the provincial government on their new Stronger BC uh, platform to introduce uh, COVID-19 relief funding. Tell us your thoughts about that and uh, what you think the prospects of a BC election are. 
Well, it looks like the prospects are quite likely. Of course, there's a fixed election date for next October. Um, but given that there is now a new Green leader um, and that Andrew Weaver has essentially started campaigning for John Horgan and the NDP, so the former Green leader who signed the initial agreement has basically said he's done with the current iteration of the Green Party, um, the Liberals are lagging in the polls. So obviously the NDP and John Horgan and the people around him are thinking hard about calling an election. We're seeing all kinds of candidate announcements people announcing they're not running again, or they are stepping up to run for the open seats. Um, all of this is happening, you know, this is Friday, we're, we're speaking on a Friday, um, and it's the end of a very difficult week for parents and, and teachers and people in British Columbia in general. Um, we've been choking on terrible air during this first week back to school, and um, it's a very weird time to be uh, speculating to go into a snap election. So my general attitude towards it is um, this is beyond what, what I can um, participate in. Um, and I think a, a ton, and you know, that's as a total political animal, I think um, most people in British Columbia are not really looking forward to an election uh, right now. But this is you know, purely motivated by the, the chance the NDP sees uh, to win a majority. Uh, government here and they wonder um, when the pandemic gets worse this winter or when the economy, the effects hit the economy harder next spring, um, if they'll be in worse shape than uh, electorally. So they're, they're weighing their options. And, you know, I'm sure there's some interesting fights happening in the back rooms uh, of the NDP deciding on whether to go into an election right now or not. Yeah, I like that um, the conversation uh, isn't just about whether or not they think it's politically you know, feasible to look at a majority, but also looking at the other side, whether or not waiting too long will hurt them. Because we're already seeing in Alberta what's happened with uh, the UCP government. They're now tied in polling with the Alberta NDP in opposition. And they're still some time away from an election. And the UCP there has a majority. Um, so that's something to consider as well. You, we may see a snap election there at some point as well. Um, and then we're looking also at Ontario, where they're effectively in a second wave now. There were just over 400 cases announced today. Um, and the numbers are increasing seemingly exponentially at this point. So what you say is exactly right. The BCNDP is in kind of a favorable position, but... I'm sure that some of the conversations in those back rooms are thinking that, or the thinking behind them uh, says that this good situation that they're in is not going to last very long. And some of the favor that they have with some of the organizations that helped them get elected last time, um, you know, including the teachers unions, which have now, as of this morning, filed an appeal with the uh, labor relations board to look at uh, potential um, job action if mediation can't find a solution to the classroom issue, it certainly would um, stand to reason that a snap election is definitely on the cards. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it looks like it, and it's just whether um, the voices of, of caution will sway Horgan out of um, this decision that is, appears to have been put in motion. But let's look at the Ontario example. So there you have the NDP in opposition, and they just uh, brought forward at, at Queen's Park a motion to cap class sizes at 15 uh, in order to keep kids safe during uh, being in class during the pandemic. Meanwhile, here in British Columbia, there's no semblance of, of nothing close to that in terms of um, uh, a class size. They're, they're, um, my son's grade four class has 28 uh, kids once, once they're all back shortly. Um, you know, so teachers have been essentially... Um, I would say just sort of abandoned or cast aside um, by this government. Um, the, the education plan they announced in the summer, summer was rather shambolic, and then they had to kind of scramble um, to change it. And yeah, now you had the BCTF president, the teachers union president, um, coming pretty close to threatening job action or strike action um, today. Um, and so that's where things are heading. But in Ontario, where the Conservatives are in power, the NDP is calling this stuff out and um, calling for class sizes of 15. And here they're sort of just uh, churning along um, as, as any sort of establishment government in BC would do vis-a-vis -vis teachers. Um, so it's interesting to see um, how the tables have turned there and you have sort of establishment figures like Keith Baldry um, com commenting that, you know, the teachers are just exaggerating. Most people think the return to school stuff is going great. Um, and uh, so that's an interesting alignment of interests. So whether uh, the teachers union um, agitating or becoming more active would, would hold off an election uh, is definitely a consideration or whether the NDP thinks they can do it without uh, the backing of traditional supporters like the BCTF. Well, considering how much is going on in the background right now, I don't know how much longer negotiations are going to stay friendly. Uh, a note that I got um, from a, a friend who's a teacher and also knows some teachers, this is basically a memo that, uh, that was sent out um, internally, and I'll read some of the po uh, point form notes to you here. They fully expect for the illness to be going through schools. They plan to manage it. Illness in schools will not be classified as outbreaks, but rather cases and clusters to be managed. There's no hard 14-day isolation policy. Isolation is now up to 10 days, but doesn't have to be that long. If symptoms present, stay home until no symptoms are after at least 24 hours. COVID test is not required if you are sick, but no tests, just stay home for 10 days. They are encouraging policies to be put in place to allow adults and students with mild symptoms present to still be at school to avoid missing more days. Adults and students allow, are allowed to be in school if they have pending results from a COVID test. Reporting of positive COVID cases to fellow students and staff seems to be very limited, if at all. We could have fellow staff and students test positive and never be told. And of course, there's also no mask requirement, even for the older kids. No, and yeah, exactly. And, you know, like in some of the other jurisdictions in Alberta and in Ontario, you have four, five, six splits in a lot of these middle schools. And some of the students are required to wear masks and others aren't. Um, and, you know, I've said this on a previous episode. Kids don't listen. And kids get germs all the time. And they're always in the dirt, <laughs> always playing with each other. Um, they, they don't have the same faculties as adults do to differentiate between what is actually a risk and what isn't. And when they're being told, you know, this is not 
as bad as it seems to be, or, you know, we're not going to take as many precautions, then of course, they're just going to follow the lead of people that are supervising them. And if those teachers and TAs are being told by the government, things like these, then we're just looking at a potential cluster bomb of a situation here. Yeah, it's it's not serious. Uh, the government has, you know, I think, thrown away a lot of its its credibility, and their public health officer, who has allowed herself to be uh, politicized, um, I, I would say, allowed herself, or whom the government has politicized, Bonnie Henry, um, has also lost a lot of her saintly glow um, that she had. Although I think this maybe gets to the point here with this this potential election. There is a divide between the political class in British Columbia, which includes significant elements within the party establishment in the NDP, and the working classes um, who are really on the front lines of this pandemic. So teachers have been cast aside. We, we talked about that. Um, hospital workers um, and other public sector union members who were promised hazard pay in July, or the hazard pay would arrive in July, they were told, um, that simply never happened. And now that money is being said to um, be coming to those workers maybe in October, in November, as one lump sum payment for the first four months of the pandemic, I believe. Uh, so my partner happens to be a HEU member, so I know about this. Um, but that hazard pay just never showed up in the summer. Um, and a lot of working families were counting on it. Um, but this was announced to much fanfare in May and June uh, from the government as part of its pandemic response, and then it just never got delivered. So I think uh, these issues do not resonate with the people in the halls of power who are thinking about a majority government. Um, and I think that's where we should distinguish between both the left and right wing in British Columbia, but also between the political class um, and the rest of us. And while BC has obviously handled the pandemic better than most jurisdictions in North America to this point, I, I think we're starting to see some slippage along those fault lines. Um, and the people who are dreaming of a majority government and getting raring to go for, for a fall election, um, they're not questioning Bonnie Henry. They're just thinking about the, their polling numbers. Um, and yeah, they're, they're thinking about power and, and influence for themselves. Now, I want to also talk about this uh, new report that um, you reported on from the CCPA that talks about how the billionaire class has effectively made a killing off of the COVID-19 pandemic. The top 20 billionaires in Canada have amassed more than $37 billion since the start of the pandemic. That's less than nine months, and they've made over $37 billion. And... When you look at some of the net worth of some of these billionaires and how much they make per day, we're talking in the tens of millions of dollars. We have different political parties that have different proposed solutions in how to introduce wealth taxes or how to address mass inequality. And as you pointed out in your article, the NDP's proposal is 1% on um, excess of 20 million uh, in, in income. And you also uh, went into some detail that Bernie Sanders in the US, his proposed wealth tax went into much you know, greater detail as to the tax brackets that would incrementally increase in the amount of tax that they would be charged on their you know, excess in 50 million, 100 million, et cetera. 
But one thing that a lot of people don't know about um, is the Green Party's policies on wealth taxing or wealth taxation. And uh, what two of the candidates that are running in the leadership race are proposing an actual cap on excess wealth where effectively we would be eliminating billionaires. Yeah, Dimitri Lascaris, uh, Miriam Haddad, um, and I, I think Amita Kuttner as well, all proposing um, a wealth cap. So essentially, um, a limit on the amount of wealth um, you can amass in capitalism. And, and someone proposed this online, I forget who said this, but um, you know, it wouldn't take away the incentive for people to uh, earn $500 million if there was a wealth cap at $500 million. You could even give them a plaque or a certificate uh, that said, that you, hey, you won capitalism. Uh, from yeah, now I remember hearing about that one. <laughs> yeah, hand over the rest. Um, so essentially, I mean, I remember when Tom Mulcair was the NDP leader, he warned that um, talking about corporate and taxes on the wealthy over 50%, um, at the highest progressive tiers, that amounted to confiscatory taxation. Um, while some of these green candidates and others are talking about confiscatory taxation in the sense of, uh, in the sense that a wealth tax is designed to actually drive down the fortunes of the billionaires, not just to raise funds off of their obscene wealth, uh, but to limit what they can uh, accumulate and then to essentially diminish the fortunes of those who have billions and billions of dollars. And yes, this report that uh, 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 Mihal Rozworski and Alex Hemingway did for the CCPA, CCPA um, was unreal. I mean, that was only six months. They were actually just measuring from May, uh, sorry, from March 18th to September using Forbes data. Uh, now, it so happened that in March, the stock market was low, but they even compared it against uh, 2019 numbers. And even if you look at it from 2019, billionaires, the top 20 billionaires are up $28 billion. Um, oh, no, so only 28 billion rather than 37. Yeah, and, and coming back to the issue of hazard pay and, and the working class, class who is really on the front lines of this pandemic, um, Jim Patterson and Galen Weston, both among their other holdings, uh, their billions are coming from owning these big grocery store chains, um, essentially oligopolies. Uh, so Save on Foods, uh, which is owned by the Patterson Group in BC, they cut the hazard pay for their workers at the end of May, just two months after bringing it in at the start of the pandemic. Um, they got rid of the, I think it was $2 or, yeah, $2 extra an hour or $4. That's right, yeah. I don't have that in front of me. Um, so Patterson cut the hazard pay. The union complained. I mean, the one union representing those workers complained a bit, but it didn't really get picked up. The, the press doesn't want to go after Jim Patterson. They all want to be invited to his yacht for a party in Coal Harbor. Like, th this is how the BC establishment rolls. Um, I don't know if people know, know this history, but uh, the former NDP premier of British Columbia, Glenn Clark, um, was headhunted and hired, and I think he's now the president um, of the Jim Pattison Group. You know, he's yes, he is. But the top or the second um, to Pattison position in running these companies. Um, so that's just a, a clear example of the way this uh, billionaire oligarch here in BC uh, kind of buys off figures from from the labor movement um, and uh, put puts them to work. And I think. A lot of the reason the criticism of people like Patterson is muted is that even uh, people in the opposition ranks in politics or in the labor and NDP ranks 
don't see themselves necessarily as anti-establishment. They see themselves as the progressive wing uh, of the political class. So if I'm harping on this a bit, it's uh, <laughs> it's maybe just the, the timing of it all. Um, but yeah, I think there's a big space in BC for a more anti-establishment kind of politics. And this report from the CCPA gives us the targets, uh, you know, gives us the people to talk about. I mean, Chip Wilson uh, is in that report. He gained $3 billion in wealth in the last six months. Um, I don't know exactly what investments that's coming from, but he's been buying up hundreds of millions of dollars in real estate uh, for speculation purposes here in Vancouver. Um, his mansion uh, where he lives some of the time is worth 60 something million dollars. Uh, it's got nine bathrooms. Uh, I mean, you could go on down that list uh, of the billionaires. And, you know, I do hope we see more political candidates, whether it's with the eco-socialists, a new party, uh, or running through the NDP or the Green Party, taking up a more anti-establishment uh, po political or policy framework, but also like a uh, discursive framework because I think these policies or these issues really resonate with people. There's a reason a wealth tax is polling at over 75% support in Canada. Uh, when people are trudging to work through the smoke uh, and to put their mask on and, you know, run, um, run their cash, re cash register or their classroom for eight hours. Um, and then they come home and see that these billionaires have just been just by the very fact of their money sitting in the bank, or in their investments, they've gained billions of dollars during this pandemic. I mean, uh, it's amazing that we're not out um, with the pitchforks at this point. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what it will take, but I, but I do think we have to see like a conscious effort to intervene politically with a more anti-establishment uh, discourse as well as the, the traditional left-wing left -wing policies. Derek O'Keefe is the co-founder of Ricochet Media. You can find them on their website, ricochet.media, and you can follow Derek on Twitter, at Derek O'Keefe. Thank you so much for joining me back on the show, and have yourself a great weekend. Thank you so much. You have a great weekend, too, as much as we have weekends anymore. Coming up, I speak with Kiefer Furtak about the BC election and his podcast, Adreno Politics. And later in the show, part three of the GPC Leadership Contest, I speak with Miriam Haddad about her candidacy and about her chances of being elected leader on October 3rd. Joining me now on the show is the host of the Bedrino Politics podcast, Kiefer Furtak. Thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be here. So we've got a few things to talk about. And one of the more recent and pressing things that I saw on social media was the post on Twitter by conservative leadership um, winner, if we want to <laughs> use that term loosely, the cons new conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole tweeted out a message on Labor Day to Canadian workers saying that he has their backs. I find this hilarious and frightening at the same time. Hilarious because we all know conservatives are no friends to labor, but frightening because he's pulling this literally out of Trump's playbook and Trump ended up winning the last election due to that. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely feel the same way just starting off about that. Like, uh, 
you know, I feel like with Harper and Andrew Shear, they were a lot less competent when it came to making online content and stuff like that. But when I, what I've seen from O'Toole so far has pretty genuinely kind of scared me seeing just the efficiency he's putting out content with, um, the kind of paradigms he's using, the rhetoric. It's really surprised me to some degree, but I definitely think it's something to be learned about. And to a certain extent, I think that because of where he's from, because he's from Durham, Ontario, and that is, you know, for all intents and purposes, a worker's riding. And it's exactly what Trump did in the Rust Belt. He basically told all the auto workers, all the coal mining workers, that he had their backs, he was going to fight for them, and he got their vote. And my fear is that that's what a tool is going to do with auto workers in Canada and steel workers, and he's going to win their votes. And the NDP and Greens so far have been very, very quiet on O'Toole. And I think that's a huge problem and that needs to be addressed and fast. Yeah, like I definitely think the NDP's social media strategy is quite lacking on Labor Day. I made that post about how they basically just had a sign-up list for their Labor Day announcement as a, like a party statement and that's the day that O'Toole re released that video. I think it's well over 200,000 views now. Um, that's definitely something that they have to catch up on because if they don't, I actually used to work in an auto plant. Uh, I worked there for a couple summers. It was very interesting because when you talk to those people, you could talk to the workers about a lot of left-wing concepts. But as soon as you said NDP or Green Party, they just shut down. They didn't want to hear about that. But when I look back at that kind of sample group that I used to work with, it's it's terrifying because if they see someone like O'Toole being the image of, you know, fixing the auto industry, they're going to go and vote for him because a lot of those people were socially conservative to begin with. And a lot of those people I worked with, especially like the white older people, they typically tended to blame the immigrant workers for their stagnant wages rather than trade deals like NAFTA or jobs being shipped out of the country. And I really feel like that's where exactly like just what you said with the Rust Belt that kind of blue collar stuff. Um, I've worked a lot of blue collar jobs. I know a lot of those people tend to be somewhat socially conservative, but they'll go with whoever they think's looking out for them. And if the NDP isn't signaling that, the Green Party isn't signaling that. Aaron O'Toole, I looked at his feed just before this. It's just full of, um, you know, he's thanking truck drivers, construction workers, all these kind of blue collar jobs. And the NDP and the Green Party is just not doing that. And I really feel like that's going to backfire on them. Yeah, and for all intents and purposes, when it comes to who is fighting for whom here, we know that conservatives and liberals are not fighting for the workers. We know this. But to continuously just say the same things over and over when it comes to NDPs and Greens criticizing the, the governments, whether they're liberal or conservative, people are losing their patience when it comes to just criticizing unless they have a plan of their own and are outwardly saying this is how we'll stand up for you this is how we'll stand up for you it's not going to matter it doesn't matter how right we are because no one cares when it comes to the ballot box if any criticism that has been leveled against liberals or conservatives has been proven to be justified. No one cares about that. All they care about is, what are you going to do for me? 
And if the NDP and the Greens don't come up with that plan to say, this is what we're going to do for you, then the conservatives and liberals are going to get those votes because that's what they focused on is this is what we're going to do for you. This is what we're going to implement to ensure that you have a job, that your family is secure and that you'll be prosperous and your life will be stable and will continue to have, to have stability. So unless the other parties whether it's NAP, whether it's the Greens, whether it's anyone else, to be honest, has a plan and focuses in on the finer points and comes up with messaging that's effective, like Aaron O'Toole's messaging has been to this point, they're not going to stand a chance in a general election. Exactly. And uh, I, I feel like, too, like uh, my major is political science. So like when I look back at um, historical elections in Canada, you typically see the last, it's a, the theory I call it is a bipartisan flip-flop. Uh, basically, after Trudeau Sr. served, you kind of just see this flip-flop between liberals and conservatives that usually last about two terms, and they usually have majorities, usually. And I feel like Canada just kind of has this natural tendency, once there's enough scandals that happen, they kind of flip-flop. And, and then the right, the perfect storm can come along, and the conservatives can ride on that. And that's kind of what I'm seeing here with O'Toole, is that just today, again, I saw another scandal. Another former Liberal MP was charged with a breach of fraud or something. And just that stuff keeps adding up. And I really feel like a lot of people are kind of overlooking um, O'Toole here, because especially compared to Harper, when it comes to like personality, um, his French is better. He's a better speaker. I believe he's a former veteran. So he's, he might have some kind of sway in that kind of crowd. Um, I would be pretty alarmed right now if I was just a, you know, if I was a left-wing person, in, well, I am a left-wing person in Canada, but I'd be pretty alarmed that he could, uh, especially if we have an election here uh, in the next little bit federally, um, I would be very concerned about that. Now, speaking of a federal election, we're not looking at officially another election for uh, at least another year, but anything can happen in a minority government uh, and the, the throne speech is coming. Uh, in a couple of weeks uh, when Parliament resumes. What do you think is going to be the focus of the next throne speech? And do you think the opposition parties are going to try to bring the government down? I think what's going to happen is Trudeau's going to try to signal to the left, because I think that's what the Liberals do. They campaign to the left and govern to the right. So I feel like Trudeau, in cooperation with the media, they're really going to try and push that he's doing this big green investment, this new, um, uh, like this modified CERB system, new un un unemployment system. I really feel like he's going to try and do a really big push there. Um, obviously, I expect the Conservatives to vote the throne speech down. I, it's kind of a, I know the Bloc said they'll, they'll vote it down, but I mean, it, I think it really depends on the polls. If they're in a position where they're going to go down in the polls, they won't. But the way it looks now, I think the Bloc will vote it down as well. I think it's going to come down to the NDP um, and basically how courageous the NDP wants to be. So if the NDP really wants to push for policies like pharmacare, um, like extending CERB and stuff like that, if they're really going to push for that, or are they just going to accept some smaller victories with the liberal government? Uh, I, de I definitely expect Trudeau to just play the faux progressive card. That's what I'm basically expecting from him. Um, and when it comes to the NDP, 
from people that I've seen, it kind of looks like people are leery to start another election, um, especially during the pandemic. So I feel like that'll be a factor too, that some people within the NDP um, might not be as courageous as they normally would be in a normal situation with a minority government because they're worried that they don't want to send everyone to the polls and stuff like that. And when we look at the Liberals historically, they typically tend to, like when Michael Ignatieff was leader, they passed budgets with the Conservative Party. And when Stefan Dion was trying to work with that coalition government with Jack Layton, that didn't work out. So I feel like with precedents um, in history, it's really tough to say what's going to happen. I really think a lot of it comes down to, are Canadians going to buy Trudeau's speech? Um, are people going to get over the we scandal? Are people going to get over the other scandals that have popped up? Or are, is that those scandals, are those scandals going to be bad enough for Trudeau that he's looking at another minority government? He may make some more concessions with the NDP in that situation. Now, speaking of upcoming elections, in British Columbia, we're staring down a possibility of having an election in the fall. And based on current polling, it looks as though if an election were called and if the, the current polling held, that the BCNDP would form a large majority. Now, in the same polling, one in three, at least one in three voters do not want an election in the fall. But there's a lot of talk in inner circles amongst the parties, as well as among pollsters and media types that all signs are pointing to that fall election. What do you think is going to happen? Um, are we going to have an election in British Columbia? And what do you think is going to sway the voters in terms of what the government wants to do versus what the opposition wants to do? I think it's pretty likely, as long as the polls hold where they are right now, I think it's pretty likely that um, BC will have an election. Uh, I feel like the NDP is just, especially provincially, they need, uh, as a party, if they want to have more success, they need to have a majority government somewhere in Canada. And like BC is the best opportunity for that, especially with the polling right now. Um, I feel like with the pandemic too, we saw with a lot of premiers, they got that kind of pandemic boost. And Horgan, I believe, has gotten the best boost. Um, and like you said, that's why he's like pulling a majority territory right now. Um, yeah, his personal approval rating is uh, 62%. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly high. And I feel like when you have a chance, when parties have a chance like that, if they can have an election, they're going to want an election because uh, then, then they get to govern for another four years. So I, I feel like it's, it's going to be difficult with the pandemic to have an election. And I feel like that's going to, it's really kind of changed Canadian politics as a whole. There's so many different factors going on right now with the economy, the pandemic. Um, it's really kind of created this complex situation where a lot of different things can happen. I feel like the polls are pretty uh, reliable and I wouldn't really expect any major changes in the polls unless BC were to have like, um, BC has been done pretty well with coronavirus. So unless there was going to be like a major outbreak there and a lockdown or something like that, I don't really expect to like to see Horgan's uh, polling numbers dip below where they are now. Um, and I know too, especially since they had to work with the Greens before, like they, they the party's not going to want to do that. Um, if they can have a majority, they're going to take that. Um, and yeah, like I said, with the outcome, I, I would just expect the, the NDP to win. Um, just because 
In times of political tragedy, people usually turn to leaders, leaders' approval ratings go up, and the pandemic is kind of a political tragedy in that sense, where people have a lot of trust. They tend to be less critical of leaders at that time, as long as things are going relatively okay. And with Horgan, I feel like that's just going to be a, a pretty easy election for him. Now, let's talk about the other leadership race. The Green Party's uh, leadership is um, coming to an end here in the next few weeks. Uh, the, the vote is going to be on October the 3rd, I believe. And the last debate was yesterday. And uh, some of the leadership candidates have um, a very pointedly eco-socialist point of view and platform. And uh, you spoke with one of those leadership candidates, uh, Mary Hamadad. Um, she's going to be on my show next week. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that interview went and uh, what you make of the leadership race for the Greens. It went very well. Um, Miriam's a very nice person. Uh, and I feel like the interview went very well when I spoke to her. Uh, me and her, I'm sure a lot of your viewer base shares similar political beliefs to her and Dimitri, I would assume. And I feel like that's kind of what I got to, um, even down to stuff about like memes and engaging content. When I talked to Mary about that stuff, she was very pro, um, you know, having online engaging content and kind of fixing what we discussed earlier about the Green Party, just not really having a social media game at all. Um, when it comes to the leadership race, I really feel I've paid a lot of close attention to this. And it's interesting because I really feel like uh, a lot of people before just thought um, Paul would win. Uh, and it would just be, you know, she typically tended to be the person that uh, a lot of like establishment figures in the party kind of were going for. I believe she got an endorsement from Elizabeth May. And at the start, it kind of just looked like she would probably win without any kind of major contest, probably in the first round. And that really changed. Uh, the leadership race got a lot bigger than people were expecting. An interesting fact about it is that the party, like the individuals who have the leadership candidates who have platforms, it wasn't really supposed to go that depth into that. Um, the party, you know, the, it was supposed to be a leadership race based off of who's the best person to lead the party. Um, when it comes to policy, policy in the Green Party is passed by the members, not the candidates. So the thing is, is that the candidates, when they propose certain kinds of um, like uh, bills or policies, they're going to have to get that passed in the General Assembly in the Green Party. So what's interesting is I feel like a lot of people expected it to just be, you know, Paul would win and there wouldn't be this huge debate over policy. But that really changed, especially with the, the amount of new people that came in. Over 15,000 new members came to the party. Um, once that happened, that really kind of shifted this much larger discussion on policy. And, you know, should the Greens be a centrist party? Should they be an eco-socialist party? And I feel like that's where Miriam and Dimitri have really succeeded is they've brought that kind of eco-socialist perspective into mainstream politics. They really shifted the Overton window. And when we look at fundraising right now, Dimitri's in second. Um, and he had a great August. So I don't really feel that Paul is the clear, she's still the, for, like the front runner to some degree, but I don't think it's going to be as easy of a win for her as it was before. I definitely think the leadership race will go more than one round and it's going to really come down to who picks the candidates who get eliminated who are going to be their second and third and uh, fourth choices and so on so what's next for the Bedrino politics podcast what have you got on deck 
Um, I've got an episode coming. The next one I'm working on is about a sociological theory combining a just basically some different ideas like social capital and moral entrepreneur, basically just a episode about how to convince people. Uh, like if you're a left-wing person, how you should go about um, debating politics and being respectful with other people, but doing it in a way where you're actually going to be able to change someone else's opinion. Um, that's kind of like a theory I've been working on for a while. And that's usually based around, um, you know, sharing cultures with other people. So for example, if you're talking to a conservative person, you want to kind of build a relationship. You want to, if you have an interest in hockey and they do, there's a good place to start. And then you can gradually start talking about more advanced topics rather than um, some of the other ways I see left-wing people go about discourse where you're just attacking people or not looking for some kind of uh, similar culture to share common ground on. And uh, yeah, after that, I've got some, I'm going to try to have some other guests on too in the near future. Um, I've been pretty busy with school, but yeah, that's basically all I've got planned for the next little bit. The Bedrino Politics Podcast is a political and comedy show centered around left-wing and youthful perspectives on modern politics. You can find the Bedrino Politics on Twitter, at Bedrino Politics, and you can find them on the website, bedrinopolitics.podbean.com. Thank you so much for joining me on the show, Kiefer. Have yourself a great day and uh, stay safe out there. Thanks for having me on. Coming up, I speak with Mariam Haddad about the Green Party leadership race, and what chance she has as an eco-socialist. Joining me now on the show is another one of the Green Party leadership candidates, Mariam Haddad. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, for inviting me. So let's talk first a little bit about how you got started in your political career and what motivated you to want to run for the Greens as a leadership candidate. Okay, so, uh, well, you know, uh, it's, uh, I, I got into politics a bit by, uh, by, by coincidence or, or mistake. <laughs> uh, what happened is during the last, uh, just before the last uh, federal election, um, the, the president of the Quebec wing, which I, I work with, uh, he works with me on, on refugee claims as an interpreter, uh, suggested that I run in one of the available writings uh, in the, the suburbs of, of Montreal. Uh, and that I would have fun. So I just went ahead and, uh, and uh, went ahead because I like new experiences and I just uh, loved uh, campaigning. I, I loved uh, participating in, in debates and uh, my first debate ever was on TV against a minister and it went super well. And, uh, and yeah, for sure. The, uh, the, um, so I, I landed with the Green Party of Canada. I did check the platform. I would have never ran for, uh, for the Liberals or the Conservatives, don't get me wrong, you know. But like I checked the platform and uh, I saw that I really belong, that the values of the Greens belong to, my, to me too. And, uh, and yeah, so uh, I was disappointed with the results, went back to uh, my full-time job of uh, an immigration lawyer specializing in refugee claims. And, uh, and I was recruited again a few months later. Um, somebody um, suggested that I, uh, if I ever thought about running uh, for the leadership, um, and I would, I just, it took me time to say yes, but I felt a sense of responsibility towards my generation and the next ones. And um, I feel like um, 
I'm somebody uh, with my identities. I could inspire a lot of people uh, to join um, to join the movement, to to be inspired, to to believe in politics again. And uh, this is why I went ahead and uh, decided to run. Yeah, one of the things I've noticed about your campaign and about you in general is that you're not afraid to tackle the issues and also not afraid to to go toe to toe with any politician, especially on social media, even amongst your own party. And um, I think that's earned you a little bit of a, a reputation as um, someone who doesn't back down and is very, very strong in their convictions. And something I noticed also on your website is that you're um, a very proud eco-socialist. And I think that is something that needs to be said more often because <laughs> I think politicians really are afraid of that term because it's been twisted by the right wing and by the media and by corporate um, mouthpieces who think that eco-socialists want to effectively take away all their rights or they want to close off business or you know a lot of this rhetoric that we're seeing from for-profit uh, companies and um, and their sponsors. And it's just not true because building a, a climate plan in and of itself, a way to detract from business, it's a way to create a new, a new paradigm when it comes to how we think about business and how we think about the economy. So tell us a little bit about what your plans are if you were elected leader and how you would uh, implement, you know, t things like the Green New Deal. Yes, um, definitely. And you're completely right. It's uh, the, the, uh, the perception of socialism has been completely twisted. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, like we're, we're actually um, friends. Uh, we are uh, allies to the workers and uh, our plan is to create uh, jobs within that Green New Deal. And a Green New Deal, it's, it's pretty much a plan uh, to tackle climate change uh, and uh, at the core of all the policies would be uh, uh, decolonization and social justice. Um, what we've been talking about a lot, and uh, you know, this, this Green New Deal won't be built by uh, me or my entourage. It, it's gonna, there's gonna be many, many actors um, taking uh, part in, in building the Green New Deal. Indigenous communities, uh, if they want to participate in, in dismantling uh, colonialism within, from within, this is, this is what I, I suggest. Um, uh, so indigenous communities, marginalized communities, racialized communities, uh, unions, um, municipalities and provinces, uh, there's uh, the NGOs, the experts, uh, there's many people that will be taking uh, um, uh, economists, I mean there's uh, the modern monetary theory um, uh, that could apply and um, I've been talking about three uh, bold uh, policies uh, which are a nationalized and affordable internet. Uh, we know now, uh, nowadays, um, after this pandemic, how important it is to have access to a high-speed uh, quality internet that is not too expensive. And currently, the um, uh, the, the major companies uh, that uh, that do own the, the telecommunication grid don't have any um, incentives to actually get the grid to, to everybody uh, inside the, the country. So um, I think the, the, it's a, a must absolutely to, for everybody to get access to, uh, to internet. And um, there's also federal jobs guarantee that would be implemented um, uh, with a guaranteed livable income. Uh, this is something that uh, certain economists have been working on. And that um, um, in itself, this with the wealth tax within a Green New Deal, 
and uh, uh, universal social services would make sure that um, it would lower the uh, the inflation possibilities and lower the uh, uh, the um, um, unemployment and lower also the um, poverty uh, uh, rates. So it's um, it's a plan. It's a bold plan. Yes, it's also a plan to decarbonize. We need to decarbonize our economy. We don't have a choice but to do so. It's a question of survival at the end. And uh, while doing that, uh, we're, we're tackling inequalities. And uh, and yeah, it's we we need to rethink our economy for it to be about uh, caring for the planet and caring for each other. So um, we'll be creating a lot of jobs um, and sustainable jobs, uh, healthier, much healthier than working on, in the tar sands uh, for certain um, um, fossil fuel workers. And, and it's the fossil fuel workers that have been brought up by the right and by, by the conservatives as the reason why, why to not decarbonize and, and phase, uh, phase off fossil fuels. Um, but if we have a replacement for these jobs with better jobs that are unionized with benefits, I don't understand why the fossil fuel workers wouldn't be um, uh, willing to do this uh, transition with us. So uh, it's all about doing, having a Green New Deal. It's a plan to make sure that nobody's left behind. Now, in terms of the leadership race up to this point, you and um, a couple of other candidates, uh, notably uh, Dimitri Lascaris, who's another um, proud eco-socialist, have been making waves in the last few weeks uh, leading up to the last leadership debate. And the fundraising numbers in particular have shown that. Um, what has been the greatest um, motivation for you so far in the leadership campaign? And how are you going to take that and run with it for the next two weeks leading up to the leadership vote? It's uh, the fact that uh, our campaign is 100% grassroots. I'm so proud of the volunteers and the team of volunteers. Honestly, uh, uh, what we've been building, um, uh, this, uh, we, we have a convention coming up also called the, uh, the Watermelon Revolution Convention that is happening on the 20th of, uh, of September. Um, it's on Sunday. We'll be talking about many subjects. Um, the topics that will be discussed are um, land back, um, uh, abol- police abolition, um, green jobs, and the last one is building a coalition. So um, these are the uh, a lot of topics that we've been talking throughout um, the, this campaign that we've been talking about. And uh, yes, so I feed off uh, the, our volunteers. You know, I'm just so proud with whatever we achieved so far. And and you know, we saw what there's about 15,000 new members that joined the Green Party of Canada, maybe 5,000 within the last week uh, of the deadline of the 3rd uh, of September. And, uh, and yeah, like, I, I feel like we brought hope again to uh, uh, Canadian politics that finally we might have um, a representation and an eco-socialist as a leader of a major federal party, um, something that uh, we didn't have in, uh, in Canadian politics for decades now. So it's, um, it's, been, it's been a great ride so far, but there's still so much to do. And, you know, the, struggle, the struggles ahead will be, uh, will be, there will be many of them, but we, me and Dimitri are really willing to, to, uh, to fight uh, for, for the many. That's, uh, that's our plan. Now, I like that you brought up uh, representation and how it matters in this campaign, because uh, along with Amina Kuttner, you're also one of the um, uh, members of the LGBTQ community, as well as um, the daughter of immigrants. And two issues that you know c- come up very often, but often aren't represented in our politicians, 
um, are uh, immigrant and refugee rights and LGBTQ rights. So what would it mean to you as a member of you know, both of those communities and being representative of that to be on the national stage? It's, uh, it's, it's huge, honestly. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I decided to run in the first place to um, give uh, hope and courage to people to be proud of who they are and uh, that they can uh, achieve whatever uh, they have as goals. So um, I was extremely lucky, don't get me wrong. Like I, um, uh, some people have much more uh, struggles than I do, um, at least when my parents know how to do mathematics. You know, when we arrived here, at least they showed me how to calculate. Uh, these are um, uh, things that a lot of uh, children and a lot of, uh, a, lo a lot of folks don't get uh, when they arrive in this country. So um, I, I, I recognize the privilege that I have, but I want to give hope uh, to people. Like that's, uh, that's the plan. The fact that we're millennials also, me and Anita, is something uh, quite spectacular. We would be uh, the first uh, millennials uh, uh, member of the LGBTQI uh, uh, community. Um, uh, Amita is also a person of color. Uh, so it's, uh, uh, it's been, it's representation matters, yeah, but it's, it's not about uh, uh, tokenizing people, but more um, uh, putting them in places uh, of, of uh, great representation. Like, like we need to present candidates in winnable writings and give them all the tools to be able to achieve uh, um, this win, winning the writing, you know? So it's, it, it cannot be, uh, uh, oh yeah, we got the quota, the right quota to, uh, of representation and that's it. No, we need to place people in, in winnable writings and give them all the support they need for this representation to go on. So um, yeah, we, we, and we've been talking about a lot of things also, you know, we need to, uh, th this party and, uh, and any party, uh, I'm not, I'm going to talk for all parties. They should, they should go forward with, with things that the people are asking for, like defunding the police, uh, decolonization. Uh, you know, um, that's the thing. Like it's, it's indigenous sovereignty is, is something that we talk a lot about, but, but nobody really reacts. And the politicians instead, like, except screaming in the House of Commons against racists or putting a knee on the floor, this is just not enough as, as actions against systemic racism. And um, yeah, like we can go from one subject to another for sure, Chris, but like I, I, I think representation matters, but it's not only representation that will, that will make things better for folks like, like, like us basically, yeah. And speaking of that, um, the, the Green Party, you know, traditionally has been a one issue party. But as you pointed out, there's many issues that Canadians care about, and many issues that are ballot box issues. So how is the Green Party? And if you know, you are elected the leader, how are you going to turn these policy ideas into, um, into election issues that people will mark their ballots for the Green Party? If, if I could say something about the Green Party is that uh, we failed multiple times uh, in our communications in the past because the, the policies that have been voted by the membership, um, uh, we are the most progress, progressive on most issues. But when it's about putting them forward during elections, the governance and um, people that took decisions <laughs> decided to go with another strategy and to be um, like, a further, for example, this centrist slogan, not left, not right, together forward um, for 
for some Greens, it means that we are not on the political spectrum, but for everybody else in Canada, it means that we are a one-issue party that is centrist, that is, uh, which does not make any kind of sense, you know, when we think about the policies that uh, have been voted by the membership. Now, we can get our, our, our policies better, and that, uh, that happens during a convention where, where um, um, uh, there's going to be policy discussions that will happen. Um, I think this, uh, the convention that we're having um, on Sunday, uh, the Watermelon uh, Revolution Convention, is a start in a certain way of, of uh, starting to talk about new policies that we want uh, to uh, bring forward and that the membership of the party will be voting on. Because we are a grassroots party after all. And uh, yeah, this is something achievable and it's achievable with, uh, there are many ways within the con convention and bylaws of the Green Party of Canada for us to achieve uh, a fast way uh, uh, on voting this, these policies if we have uh, a certain amount of membership participating in this. So it's, uh, it's all little projects that we have, but we are quite aware that uh, there are, there's still a lot of work to do. And uh, yeah, like I will be on it the moment I become the leader. How can folks participate in the uh, Watermelon Revolution Convention? How can they find it on social media? Right now, it's, uh, there is a link uh, to a form to complete, and uh, we will be sending everybody that, uh, that gives their, their email a, um, um, a link uh, to be able to participate in the Q&A, for example, inside this convention. There is a, a place for about um, 100 people to participate that way in the Q&A. Other than that, it's going to be uh, broadcasted on YouTube. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to be uh, having uh, lots of fun discussing many subjects and, and we will be announcing also the speakers that will be uh, participating in this. Mariam Haddad is one of the leadership candidates for the Green, Green Party of Canada. She is a lawyer and advocate, an eco-socialist and an abolitionist. You can find her on Twitter at MariamHD2020 and you can also find her website MariamHaddad.ca. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Best of luck to you and uh, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. Like what you've heard on the show? Consider becoming a patron and get exclusive access to early content, extras, and more. Visit patreon.com forward slash left behind podcast to subscribe today. Well, that's it for this special BC election episode of the LB podcast. I'd like to thank Miriam Haddad, Kiefer Furtak, Derek O'Keefe, and David Moscrop for being guests on the show this week as well as all of our Patreon subscribers and everyone else following on social media. Don't forget to check us out on our website, leftbehindpodcast.com, and make sure to check out the new Harbinger Media Network on their website, harbingermedianetwork.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Bye for now.